Good morning. Oh, it's so good to be with you today. I know that you all are very much aware that today is the day set aside to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. and his birthday and legacy. And we are very pleased today in chapel to have a special guest with us to help us remember and reflect on the legacy of MLK. I'm really thankful to have Gary Selby, Dr. Gary Selby from Pepperdine University with us today. Gary's a professor of communication and director of the Center for Faith and Learning at Pepperdine. There is a very long introduction that I could give of Gary because he has done much and is a person worthy of a lengthy introduction. But I want to preserve as much time as I can of our time together today for, his, uh, for, for him to have the chance to share with us. He's written a wonderful book published by Baylor University Press entitled Martin Luther King and the Rhetoric of Freedom, The Exodus in America's Struggle with Civil Rights and uh, comes to us with great expertise and wisdom about uh, rhetoric, about uh, faith in Christ, and about the work and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. We're going to begin with a short clip, and then we'll hear from Dr. Selby. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's good to be with you. I'd like to begin with a story. It's the story of Reverend George Lee, a minister in the small town of Belzoni, Mississippi. He started a local chapter of the NAACP in early, the early 1950s, and he convinced nearly 100 black citizens from his town to register to vote before resistance to his efforts turned violent. On May the 7th, 1955, Lee was driving home and his car was hit with gunfire from a passing car and he was killed. Without investigating, county sheriffs ruled that his death was the result of a traffic accident, that the lead pellets taken from his face were dental fillings. The coroner's report ruled that he died from unknown causes and no one was ever arrested. And that story could be repeated over and over again. And I tell you that story to give you some sense of how hopeless the average African-American in the South felt about the possibility of change in the 1950s. The obstacles were simply enormous. Things are the way they've been for the almost 100 years since Reconstruction, and that on top of centuries of brutal slavery. For generation upon generation, it's all you've ever known. And it's hard to imagine that anything could ever change. 
Attempts to resist racial oppression were often met with brutality. Just trying to register to vote could get you killed. As the civil rights movement began to experience success, African Americans encountered a backlash from many whites that from where we sit now was astonishing and obscene. King himself was repeatedly harassed and arrested, frequently the object of death threats directed at himself and his family. That backlash in many ways reached its apex in the brutal response of Bull Connor and the city police to the marchers in Birmingham in April 1963. In the bombing later that year of the 16th Street Baptist Church on a Sunday morning in October, which snuffed out the lives of four little girls who just hours before had put on their starched white dresses and their hats and gloves to go to Sunday school. And then again, two years later, when Alabama state troopers attacked and brutally beat a group of African-American protesters when they tried to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. That was the situation in which Martin Luther King emerged as the leader and the voice and the face of the civil rights movement. And somehow he was able to create a vision that united African-Americans, that gave them a common sense of identity and direction. It motivated them to put their lives on the line, to take a stand against racial oppression, and their movement changed the nation and changed the world. And there is so much that I would like to say about how all that happened. But instead, for just a few minutes today, I want to tell you a little bit of why I admire King as a leader, as a man of God. Certainly, he had clay feet. He, he made mistakes. And yet, I believe that he uniquely understood the vision that Jesus had when he went to the cross. Now, there's a lot that I admire about King. I admire the way that he used uh, his gifts as an orator. People would talk about what it was like to be in his audiences and the way that you would just be swept up in the vision that he could create with his words. I admire the way that he didn't use the trappings of success for himself. At the height of the movement, King had fame and notoriety. He had won the Nobel Peace Prize. His face had appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and yet he always lived modestly. He never drove a nice car. He never lived in a huge fancy house. Instead, what money he received, he plowed back into the movement. But I think the thing that I most admire about King was the way that he treated his enemies, the way that he responded to those who opposed him, the way that he maintained love and grace toward people who responded to him and to the movement with such hatred and violence. Almost from the moment that the Montgomery bus boycott started in December 1955, King and the protesters faced unrelenting harassment from the white opposition. And I want to give you just a small snapshot of that. January 27, 1956, it was a Sunday night around midnight. King's phone rang. He'd been getting death threats over the phone and in the mail. By this point, as many as 30 or 40 a day. This one seemed different. His wife, Coretta, and their 10-week-old daughter, Yolanda, were asleep in a nearby bedroom. The voice on the other end of the phone, dripping with hatred, called him that name that I cannot repeat, and then said, we're tired of your mess. 
And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow up your house and blow your brains out. The very next day, January 28, 1956, after trailing his car for weeks trying to intimidate him, the police pulled him over and arrested him for speeding. Two days later, January the 30th, as he was speaking at a, at a mass rally at the First Baptist Church, a bomb went off and destroyed the front part of his house. When he got the news, he told the crowd what had happened. And then he immediately left the church, and as he got close to his home, he saw a crowd of African Americans armed with weapons. And staring them down was a barricade of white police officers. King pushed his way through the crowd to the back of his house to make sure Coretta and Yolanda were okay. And then Taylor Branch, in his book, Parting the Waters, tells what happened next. He writes, King walked out onto the front porch. Holding up his hand for silence, he tried to still the anger by speaking with an exaggerated peacefulness. Everything was all right, he said. Don't get panicky. Don't do anything panicky. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We're not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. The next month, February 22nd, 1956, King and the other boycott leaders were indicted for violating the state's anti-boycott law. They were dragged into court before Judge Eugene Carter. One month later, March 22nd, he was convicted and fined. That night, King addressed a mass rally, and as a part of his speech, here's what he said. Today, the judge handed down a decision which said in substance that I am guilty of disobeying the anti-boycott law. The fine was $500. As you know, the penalty could have been six months in prison and $1,000. But I was very happy to hear Judge Carter say that he was a little lenient because I had enough religion in me at least to preach nonviolence. But then listen to what King said next. We must not totally condemn Judge Carter. He was in a tragic dilemma. Maybe he did the best he could under the expedient method. As you know, men in political positions allow themselves to succumb to the expedient rather than reaching out for the moral that might be. We're not bitter. We're still preaching nonviolence. We're still using the weapon of love. Later that year, November the 13th, 1956, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation on the city buses was unconstitutional. The movement had won a dramatic victory over racial injustice. That night, some 40 carloads of Ku Klux Klan members rode slowly through the black section of town trying to intimidate African Americans. The following night, King addressed multiple mass rallies, explaining the Supreme Court decision, giving instructions for how to proceed. And imagine what he must have been tempted to say. After centuries of humiliation and oppression, the tables have finally been turned. And I can't imagine that he didn't feel some impulse to gloat over their defeated opponents. And yet here's what King said. He said, I would be terribly disappointed if anybody goes back to the buses bragging about how we, the Negroes, have won a victory over the white people. As I have said to you so many times, the tension in Montgomery is not so much a tension between Negro people and white people. But the tension is at bottom 
a tension between justice and injustice. And if that is a victory, it will be a victory for justice and a victory for goodwill and a victory for the forces of light. So let us not limit this decision to a victory for Negroes. Let us go back to the buses in all humility and with gratitude to the almighty God for making this decision possible. Over and over again, King offered a vision of a society where we try to understand each other, where we live together in harmony, and he believed that it could really happen. Over and over again, he insisted on seeing the best in people, giving even his enemies the benefit of benevolent assumption. There were points when things were so tense, when there was so much anger and such a desire for revenge, that King could have started an armed revolt had he wanted to. All he had to do was just say the word. And yet he constantly insisted on following the way of love. He invited his hearers to do what most whites refused to do. And that is to imagine what it felt like to be in the shoes of their enemies. And so he would talk about what it felt like to be a white person in the South. What it felt like to be in a situation where it seemed like the rug has been pulled out from under you. He challenged his fellow blacks to be sympathetic toward their white oppressors. If you can believe that. He was so optimistic, he believed so firmly that if the whites who opposed them could just see the error of their ways, that their hearts would change. That was behind what he called redemptive suffering. He and his followers would take a stand against racial injustice. They would say boldly, this is wrong. And yet at the same time, they would take on themselves the violence of those who would oppose them. They would refuse to fight back. They would put themselves on display, turning the other cheek before the nation's eyes. When I was a kid, I remember hearing a story in a sermon. This, as the story went, I still remember it all these years later. The soldier, before he would go to bed at night, would, would get down on his knees by his cot and he would, he would pray. And he had a fellow soldier who saw that and just became enraged at the sight of this soldier praying. And so he leaned up out of his bed, and he grabbed his boots, and he threw them across the room and hit his fellow soldier upside the head and then turned over and went to sleep. The next morning he woke up, and there were his boots, shined to a perfect gleam at the foot of his bed. That night the same thing happened. There was his fellow soldier praying, and again this rage just boiled over in him, and he picked up his boots and again threw them across the room and, and hit his fellow soldier upside the head. Again the next morning, there were his boots, shined as if they were brand new, neatly placed at the end of his bed. That night it happened one more time. He threw his boots, hit his fellow soldier. The next morning, there they were, shined and clean. And he just broke, and weeping, he went to his, his fellow soldier, and he said, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and, and why are you doing this? I remember just being so struck by that story. But as I grew up, I remember thinking, it's a great story, but would it ever work? Has anyone ever really tried it? And then I look at Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, and I say, yes. At a point in the history of this nation, there was a people who actually tried to live out the spirit of Jesus. And here's how this hits me. 
If I am honest with myself, I have to admit that I did not earn the place in my nation's socioeconomic system that I now possess. I am a middle-class educated person in part because my father in the early 1950s could walk into a factory to a job interview when a black person wouldn't have been let in the door. And my father was able to buy a house in the suburbs and get a loan for a mortgage for that house when my fellow black citizens couldn't. And so he was able to buy a house and to begin building uh, wealth in the American way through home ownership. And I was able to go to college in some ways because of that process. It's like we were starting a marathon and somehow I got escorted up to the front of the line. Or maybe I got a 10-mile head start. But it wasn't just the structural unfairness. It wasn't just systemic racism, it was also speech and thought that was racist. The assumptions we made, the stereotypes we held to, the jokes we thought were funny. I can remember hearing the adults in my life talk about black people staying in their place. And I know I still sometimes respond to people who are different from me out of deeply held stereotypes. And I think about all that and here's what I conclude. I don't think I deserve the grace that King showed toward me and my people. I think he was far too kind. The way that King responded to his opponents was truly an act of grace, unmerited favor. And I am in awe in the face of all they struggled with that he was able to hold on to his dream of community, what he called the beloved community. And that leads me to ask you this question. Look into your heart. Look at the lenses through which you see other people, the jokes you tell, the things you think are funny. How willing are you to see the world from the eyes of people who are different from you, who oppose you? How willing are you to hear the other side, to reach across the barriers of language and class and race and political party? I challenge you to look at all of that and ask yourself this question. Was King right to be so optimistic? Or was he just being naive? Let's hear that vision in his own words. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, 
sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. <laughs>